Romans 3 is where we are in our study of the book of Romans. Now, when I say the word inclusion, what comes to your mind? What is the vibe that, that you get? Do you, do you think of it uh, positively or not so much? It's certainly a word that gets tossed around a lot in our day. Uh, many extol the values of this thing we call DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if I were to ask you the question, do you want to be included? <laughs> uh, do you want to be included? What's the smart answer to that question? Yeah. yeah. The smart answer is, and some of you didn't give this, uh, <laughs> the smart answer is included in what? Exactly. You want to probe a little bit on that point. Today we're going to read uh, the Apostle affirming again for us that as fallen human beings of every race, every religion, every stratum financially, we all, we all are included in the deep brokenness, the abject corruption of lost humanity. In our previous verses, Paul has been engaging with an imaginary Jewish debater who insists that Jews, by virtue of their heritage and their religion and their advanced knowledge through the Scriptures, have nothing to worry about with respect to final judgment. Paul says otherwise and wraps up his case in our passage for today. So we read in Romans 3, verses 9 to 20, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in His sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Before we get back to that, my apologies to Natalie for calling her by her sister's married name, Pyatt. She's Natalie Carey. The things that cross your mind for no apparent reason <laughs> as you're doing something else. All right, so back to our passage. We and they. The question comes in verse 9. Are we better than they? Now, generally, we like answering that question in the affirmative. Between we and they, we like we because that is the group that includes I, right? Most commentators, and I agree with the most, believe the we here refers to the Jews of whom the author of our epistle, Paul, is, uh, is a member. And as we have discussed, they, these Jews, uh, certainly perceive themselves to be a superior people. But the apostle has been arguing in chapter 2 that even though the Jewish people had received more from God, they had not achieved more 
they were privileged, but had not walked in that privilege, but instead in their sin. And so the surprising answer comes that no, in fact, Jews are not better than the Gentiles, not in the ways that really matter. Paul says that Jews, like their Gentile and Greek counterparts, are under sin, under sin. That's an interesting way to put it. Galatians 3.22 says the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, and that is where we find ourselves. John Bunyan, in his wonderful allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, speaks of sin in this way as a heavy burden that we carry through life until we find faith to lay it down at the foot of the cross. But Paul actually says this sin imprisons us, and this is the condition of Jews as well as Gentiles, which brings up the subject of the nuns, the nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E, That is a term used nowadays to categorize people who claim to have no religious conviction or affiliation at all. Thirty years ago in the United States of America, there were relatively few of these, but now they are much more prevalent. There's plenty of nuns, but the nuns in Romans 3 are about all of us. All are nuns. Paul's condemnation of humanity is all-inclusive, like a Mexican vacation. His approval of humanity is all-exclusive. No one makes the righteous team. No one. Look at uh, verse 10 again. None righteous, not even one, none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. These are the nuns. Who is included in this group? You're not sure? (laughs) Who's included in this? Ah, pay attention. You are a nun. If no one is righteous, it means you are what? And the opposite of righteous would be unrighteous. If you don't like being in the nuns, We can put you with the alls of Romans 3. Verse 12 says, all have become useless. And you know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Are you in Paul's all? Yeah, but the all is a negative thing. It is a universal negative. Paul says this should not be a surprise because this view of humanity is shared by the Old Testament Scriptures. He says there in verse 10, as it is written. Where is it written? Well, many portions of the Old Testament. Here's a couple. Psalm 143, verse 2, in your sight, no man living is righteous. Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer to that is... Hey, nobody, not, uh, not Putin, not Zelensky, not the Pope, not the Dalai Lama, not your grandmother, not your granddaughter. None means none. All have sin. Sin is pervasive. We confront in Romans 3 then the universal negative. Now, I like the language of Psalm 143 too. Put that back up. In your sight, in your sight, no man living is righteous. In God's sight. That's important to consider because in our sight... There, there are some people who seem to be in a different moral category. If you grade on the curve, some may qualify as righteous, and indeed the Scripture sometimes describes folks in that way. What does it mean to say 
that Joseph, the husband of Mary, was a righteous man. Well, it means that uh, in, in light of Romans 3, we know it cannot mean that he was righteous by God's standards in God's sight. So it, it must mean, we take it to mean, that he was better than most men. If I were to take all the men in our church and bring them up on stage, you would observe that some are taller than others. But by the standards of the National Basketball Association, Nobody in this room would be classified as tall. And if you went up in a plane and looked down upon those men standing in a line, you would not be able to tell who was 5'2 and who was 7'2. Just so, we think of skunks. Uh, I expect that among skunks, uh, some may be considered nice smelling. Don't you expect... Uh, Pepe Le Pew, former uh, cartoon character, uh, apparently nice-smelling skunk, we would think. But to us, they are all, all of the skunks are disgusting. Just so, given the perfect holiness of God, every fallen person is, is simply, thoroughly fallen, morally bankrupt. Now, James Boyce has a couple of good illustrations of this. In one, he imagines that a group of prisoners... Uh, got a hold of a lot of Monopoly money, if you can imagine this. So they, they get a bunch of Monopoly money, and they start using the Monopoly money within the prison as currency. They traded with it. They gambled with it. As a result, certain prisoners would become more or less wealthy, right? Uh, they, some prisoners would collect a large store over time of this prison currency. Now, Boyce says, imagine that a very wealthy prisoner who had accumulated $400,000 in the prison currency was released and then goes to a bank and tries to open an account using his prison monies. What will he learn? <laughs> Your prison money is worthless here. So that is, is an illustration of the difference between human righteousness and the type that God requires. Of that righteousness that he requires, real righteousness, we have none. One of the big differences in this human righteousness versus true righteousness that, uh, is that true righteousness considers largely our disposition towards God. We are to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is precisely here where Many fall, so very short. Look at how Paul writes of us in verses 10 to 18 again. These short verses are all quotes from the Old Testament, from various portions. After saying no one is righteous, he says, none seeks for God. One might be very nice, but does that person seek the truth? Does that person seek for the Lord? So many of our churches are built around the notion that uh, they're going to seek primarily, as their primary emphasis, they're going to seek to reach those who they describe as seekers, people who have a certain interest, a certain curiosity in matters of faith, get this particular label. And maybe they are truly seeking something, but what, according to Romans 3, are they not seeking? God. When their hearts are changed by the Lord and they truly do seek God, what will readily happen? They 
will mercifully find him. Those who seek God find God. So there is this value on seeking God, but none of us by nature, apart from the regeneration of the Spirit, will do this. Verse 12 then says also, all have turned aside. Turned aside from what? Well, we have turned aside from the ways of the Lord. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Sin is always atheistic, meaning that it denies God, it rejects God, it puts ourselves in His place. And the catalog of sin ends in verse 18 with this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They just don't care about God. They may concern themselves with human opinion, with human relations, but God is dismissed. And brothers and sisters, this is not okay. It's not. This is the essence of our fallenness, of our brokenness, of our corruption. It begins with our hostility, sometimes indifference, Toward God. It ends there too, but in the middle, it generally manifests in terrible human relationships as well. <laughs> so from verses <coughs> 13 to 17, we have a fascinating list of what we might call the anatomy of sin. Paul uses body parts to describe how we manifest our depravity toward each other. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an empty grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Boy, there's a lot of focus right here, isn't it? Now, what's the focus? What kind of sins, then, is he covering with this description of the throat and the tongue and the lips and the mouth? What kind of sins? These are verbal sins, right? Verbal's interesting. The Word of God and this is, by the way, one of the reasons we all like our dogs. <laughs> no verbal sins. They never insult you. They never put you down. They never criticize. Uh, but humans, very different. The Word of God pinpoints these types of sins as being notably prevalent among us. You know James 3, verse 2. If we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. Well, that's a big if, isn't it? None of us succeed at this. James goes on. Among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It's a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Paul uses their dramatic imagery to say the same. Open grave. Open grave. That's defiling. Deceiving tongues. God is always connected with the truth. Satan is always connected with lies. Poison. Yeah. Poison is next mentioned. Under their lips. Refers to injuries that we inflict with our words. Cursing and bitterness. Huh. Any of that go on? in our world, in your office place, on our televisions. These are marks of a rebel race, lies and perversions, 
The next verses describe violence as well, human conflict. Have you noticed that we humans have a hard time getting along with each other? Nations, tribes, families, within families, there's crime, there's theft. Oh Lord, help us. We are such an incredibly needy and broken race of rebellious sinners. So this is biblical anthropology. This is what God's Word says about the human race. May I suggest he is teaching D-E-I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Did you know the Bible teaches that? Diversity, Jews and Gentiles, all races and people groups are involved. Equity, no one is righteous. All flunked the moral exam. Inclusion. All have become useless. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a dark picture that is going to set the backdrop for the astounding good news that will soon follow. But let's think of a couple of applications before we go on. First of all, there's humility. Because I and you and the person next to you we're all among the nuns, none righteous, none who does good, none who seeks for God, corrupt of thought, corrupt of speech, corrupt of deed, humility, humility is warranted, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say? We all have plenty of grounds for humility. In human relationships, none of us comes from a, a superior place. Now, that implications, uh, the implications of that are, are enormous. One place to apply this is in your marriage. Love is blind, but marriage, you know, is a real eye-opener. Stay married to someone for a while, and you will see all of that person's flaws. But do not dare relate to your spouse from some blind sense of personal superiority. Always trying to get the speck out of your spouse's eye without dealing with your own issues, your own failings. <coughs> Humility, key to marriage and every other human relationship. Then, then too, I think of parents. What does this say about mom and dad? What does this say about your little angel? Not, not so angelic, huh? They will not need to be trained into selfishness and hurtful speech and fraternal hitting. No, no. <laughs> they will need to be trained into almost everything that is positive and good. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. So here is something I hear kids say uh, to parents, especially the older ones. And they'll say something like this. See a lot of our older kids over here, so I'm going to... They'll say things like this, Mom, Dad, you just need to trust me. You got to trust me. Ha! Our, our kids learn not to say that to me. I would just pull out Romans 3 and say, here is what God says about you. No, I don't trust you. You shouldn't trust you either. Of course, when I talk about trust, trust is not absolute. It is a relative thing. It can be developed. It can be diminished. But Romans 3 explains why we all need accountability, right? Our politicians need 
Accountability. Kids need accountability. Employees need accountability. Pastors need accountability. We are all among the nuns. Clearly, there is more that can be said about trust in certain contexts. It's appropriate, but don't fool yourself into thinking that you deserve to be trusted. You almost certainly do not, fellow nun. So now let's turn a corner and finish by pondering the role of the law of God. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Before we see what the law does, notice first of all what the law does not do. There is something Paul said the law cannot do because, uh, and it wasn't meant to do, and it will never do. What was that? It will not provide for us the way of salvation, the way of justification. The New Living Translation, verse 20, provides this. Read it out loud with me. No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Yet this is apparently what the Jews among whom Paul lived seem to think. This is what so many who live around us seem to believe. You get into heaven by doing good, by obeying the law, at least reasonably so. But Paul says, no. Galatians 2 says the same thing, verse 16. A man is not justified by the works of the law. This is what it cannot do. And it cannot do this because we cannot obey it. Paul will later say this in Romans 8, verse 3, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. We're going to come back to that in Romans, but here Paul makes it abundantly plain, our justification, our righteous standing before God, it's never going to be ours by means of our stellar obedience to the commandments of Scripture. There has to be another way, and that is what Romans 3 and 4 and 5 will describe for us. But we aren't finished with the law yet. The law cannot pave the way to our justification, but here are two things that it can do. First, it can drain you of excuses. Well, that's a useful function. Ever had an argument with your spouse or maybe your parent or your child, and the core of the dispute was over what actually had been said by someone? What actually had been agreed upon? You ever have those kind of debates? All the time, right? You, you wish there was a recording mechanism that could settle it. But sometimes, sometimes there is a helpful wrinkle. There is a written agreement. Sometimes we put it in writing. You know, you write it out for your teenage boy. Son Adam will mow the lawn by noon on Saturday, July 23, 2022. Got to be specific about these things. Any loophole, they're going to find them. Failing to do so, Adam will forfeit his evening of fun with his friends. Okay? So you have it written out. The kid signs it. You sign it. Adam signs it. But on Saturday afternoon, about 4 o'clock, Adam is given the news about his evening plans. And things erupt. Adam may say, you didn't tell me I had to do it today. But then you pull out the contract, and voila, Adam's mouth is shut. 
His excuse is blown to pieces by his signature on the document. This is what the law of God does as well. Who said I couldn't worship the goddess Diana? I'll go to church on Sunday too. Who said I can't stretch the truth at least a bit? Who said I had to honor those parents of mine who aren't very smart, I'll note. And then God pulls out the commandments and and shut my mouth. No defense, no excuses. Those mouths we read of that lied and cursed will one day be shut. That will be a good day. Every sinful soul will stand before God with nothing to say in the way of self-justification. Top Ladies Hymn puts it well. All we can do is appeal to the mercy of the judge and the sacrifice of his son. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Helpless. Silent. Same idea. Foul. I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. or I die. The law shuts the mouth of guilty sinners. And then one other thing, one other huge critical thing, it points us to Christ by showing us our need. Verse 20, again, the second part, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We, uh, we hold up our lives next to God's standards and we say, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh. Then we look around for something or someone to rescue us They say desperation is the mother of invention. Why is that? Well, it gets you motivated to find a way out of your predicament. It may even humble you to the point of putting your trust in someone else. When the doctor shows you an x-ray and says, says, look at that, there's the tumor that will kill you if we don't cut it out, what? Do you do? You say, whatever it takes, put me under, take that scalpel and slice me open. I see my need. Is that a critical step towards healing? Oh my, yes. And it is critical that we see our desperate need of pardon and cleansing for a righteousness that may be given to us, imputed to us, a righteousness that flows to us from grace. The commandments of God, which we have broken time and time again, are called elsewhere, our tutor that prepares us for Christ. I believe in Jesus for many reasons. The resurrection from the dead, the fulfilled prophecy, the witness of so many. But here's another reason why I believe in Him. What He offers me in His atoning death in my place, in His gift of righteousness that is credited to believers, is precisely what I need more than anything else. The precious law of God shows me that, convicts me of my need. Praise the Lord for that. One of my favorite hymns was written by Dora Greenwell, and a line in it says this, I take him at his word indeed. Christ died for sinners, this I read. For in my heart I find a need of him to be my Savior. That that verse speaks volumes to me. For in my heart I find a need of him to be my Savior. 
You may say, oh, well, preacher, what you're talking about then is just wish projection because you have this particular need. You pretend that there's something that will meet that need. Believe me, I understand that objection. But consider this with me. Every appetite that I have within me, every longing, every hunger corresponds to something in the external world that addresses that hunger and that need. Can we not learn something from that? I have thirst, you have thirst, and so there is water or Mountain Dew or whatever you drink to quench that thirst. The need in me is met by the reality out there. I have hunger, and so there is Giant Eagle where they always accept our advantage card. Uh, even more basic, I need oxygen, and conveniently, the air all around us is full of the stuff. Inside of me, there are longings, longings for companionship outside of me. God has provided a wife. I came in the world needing to be completely cared for, and I had a mom and a dad that cared for me as a young boy. I get tired. I need rest, and there is this miracle drug called sleep. There's also caffeine, I've discovered, but sleep is there for all of us. Uh, it is not wishful thinking. It is sensible to recognize that every longing, every need inside of me corresponds to something outside of me that meets that need, that fits that need. The hymn writer is saying in her simple verse that one of the reasons she takes God at his word is that that word announces things that correspond so perfectly with her need, and that is my story too. If you are like me, then about 99% of the advertisements that you encounter on billboards or on the internet or wherever, they bounce right off of you. You don't connect with them at all. But occasionally you will encounter an ad that catches you and pulls you in because what it is pushing speaks directly to a problem that you are feeling or experiencing, to a felt need in your life. What is offered to me by Jesus, by the good news, the gospel he came to announce, it does not strike all people that way. But the more you get to know yourself, the more you will say as well that in my heart I find this need for him to be my Savior. The message of Jesus, it speaks to the deepest, to the most basic needs in my soul. It addresses the concerns about the past and the future and the present concerning the past. What problems do I have with the past? Well, the same ones you have. In the past, you fouled up big time. You sinned against God. You sinned against yourself. You sinned against a lot of others. You want something that will deal with that guilt. But what? What is there that can deal with the problem of guilt? What has modern science given us to deal with the guilt problem? What has the government devised to address the problem of our guilt before the court of heaven? Nothing, of course. We in the church pretty much have the guilt market. We have a corner on the guilt market. Our only real competition is uh, with narcotics and the liquor industry because we alone are offering not a, a diagnosis, not an excuse, not an addictive way to just forget, but we are offering a real intelligible forgiveness that is founded in the life and death and promise of someone who is hyper-credible. And when I look at the coming of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, 
all the realities around his story, I see how perfectly Jesus meets my needs related to my past. Well, how about the future? You know, what happened yesterday makes me concerned about tomorrow. And then there's one thing I had better do in this life. It is prepare for what is coming after this life. I feel a need for that, don't you? But who is there offering help in that department? Well, there's all kind of people offering you help uh, to a certain point, suggesting that they can help you live longer, maybe a few years more. Uh, some will claim to make your finances secure right up to the point uh, where you die. Some will offer to take care of your physical remains. They'll bury them for you. They'll burn them for you. They'll fly you to the moon if you can afford to do that, whatever you like. But who is there? You know, Ashton Commons over here, the new place down the hill, they have, it's a progressive care facility. You go in there and you know, you live alone by yourself care, and then you go into various stages of more care, and then they say they can take care of you right up, right up to the end, but they stop there. <laughs> Who can take care after the end? Who's offering to take care of your eternity? Remarkably, this one who teaches us how to prepare for eternity. He flashed his credentials in the most extraordinary event in history, the one we celebrate on Easter. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And you can write this guy off as a fool, but you know something in my heart, in the depths of my being, I find a need for what Jesus is offering. I have a hunger. I have a desperate longing to know that my life is meaningful and it will last beyond this century. And only Jesus offers us something credible that corresponds to that need. So he's the king of the past. He's the king of the future. What about the now? What about the challenges of the present? Well, in the present, in this life, I need a lot. I need a guide. I need a teacher. I need a model to show me the way. I need power to deal with the temptations that come my way. I need a friend who understands me, who loves me at my worst, who is always going to be there for me. And you know what Jesus said? Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I need Jesus. He, he, he is and promises to be all of those things. You see, here's the amazing story that the Bible presents. The scriptures present us a problem at the beginning of the book that gets answered perfectly at the end of the book. In Genesis 3, we read of how man rebelled against God and how our lives and this planet were put under a curse, which explains why everything is just so difficult and so painful. Do we have anybody here from Boston? Any Bostonians in our group? We're, 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 anybody ever lived in Boston? Anybody ever been to Boston? Okay, there we go. <laughs> well, you know about Boston. For over 80 years, Boston lived under the curse of the Bambino. You know about that? See, in 1918, the Boston Red Sox won their fifth World Series, 1918. That was the most of any team up to that point. But in 1920, they sold their best player, a guy named George Herman Babe Ruth, also known as the Bambino, to the New York Yankees for $100,000. Over the next 84 years, 
the Yankees went on to win 26 World Series titles. The Red Sox won. The curse of the Bambino, they called it. In 2004, though, some of you remember, the Red Sox and the Yankees, where the Red Sox fans found themselves in a very familiar place. They were in the playoffs. They made it that far, but they were losing to the hated Yankees. Leading three games to none in their playoff series, the Yankee fans showed up at the ballpark with pictures of Babe Ruth just to annoy and taunt the Red Sox fans. It was uh, the ninth inning of that game when the Sox were behind. They were on the brink of yet another defeat when something remarkable happened. They came back and won the fourth game of that playoff series. And then... In the greatest comeback in the history of baseball, they won the fifth game, they won the sixth game, they won the seventh game, and then they went on to win their first World Series since 1918. Headline, Boston Globe the next day. Curse lifted. Isn't that good? Curse lifted. That is so rich. And that's what I want written in the headline of my life. Curse lifted. And that is precisely what our Lord Jesus has come to do for us. To take that curse of sin upon himself and thereby set us free. He comes to make His rich blessings flow far as the curse is found. What he offers is exactly what I need. In my heart, I find a need of him to be my Savior. And because of that, and many other reasons, I take him at his word. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we thank you that in Romans, Paul labors so faithfully and forcefully to convince us of our need. But he doesn't leave us hanging there. He he lays before us in these chapters we're about to get to the provision of Jesus to deal with the sin of our forefathers and the sin that we have committed ourselves to take away our sin and the death that comes with it and to give us life and to give us pardon and to give us a relationship with you in which we find every spiritual need met through the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name We pray today, and Lord, we ask for those among us who don't know that, who have yet to see their need, who have yet to run to Christ to meet it. We pray that you would mercifully show them your kingdom and the truth of what we have discussed today. And make us faithful witnesses of this truth as well. To pray for those who haven't grasped it, Lord, and as well to introduce them by our example and by our words to the Savior. We ask in Christ's name, amen.